You're listening to Something Real, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. As you probably know, if you've listened to the previous episode, uh, a couple of our missionaries, Keith and Heather Shermanic, were at church last week, and Keith preached on the glory of God, which seems like kind of a huge subject, and it is. So there was a lot to talk about today, and uh, over the next couple weeks, we're going to kind of dive into this more as well as uh, a few different ideas that we can pull from Luke while kind of connecting with Luke, but veering away a little bit. So we're getting into a discussion about Keith's message uh, today, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Stacy. I was really tempted to say good morning, Vietnam. I, I almost did. I feel like we've been there before. Um, I, <laughs> so. I can't help it. This week uh, was a little different. Uh, we <coughs> stepped away from Luke for... A minute um, and we had uh, one of our two of our missionaries uh, Keith and Heather Shamanic uh, speak and Keith did a little bit of preaching and uh, it was I enjoyed yeah. it <laughs> yeah that was extra cool Keith's mom got to come I, yeah. uh, I don't know if that's the first time she's heard him preach in a church but it was first time she's heard him preach at this church because right. that's the first time that he's preached in this building right. and uh, it was cool for me it was my first chance to get to meet his mom <clears throat> so um, his, uh, I think we mentioned in the previous podcast that uh, Keith's dad used to be the pastor of the Free Methodist Church that met in this building right. um, that was here in Three Oaks for 111 years before they closed uh, recently. And so we were excited to be able to continue ministry in this building, but uh, it was kind of an extra special blessing to be able to have Keith um, share, uh, have Keith and Heather together share about um, their ministry in Costa Rica, but also and they're about to go back, right? They are, yes. Uh, also to be able to just preach, and specifically to preach on the glory of God, which I thought was outstanding. And uh, <clears throat> you uh, you kind of followed it up as well <laughs> a little bit. We yeah. had, we had our, uh, our uh, monthly uh, remembrance celebration, and it was a nice tie-in to what Keith was actually talking about in the glory of God. Yeah, we kind of got a double double sermon. I don't know if you posted both of those or not, not. but uh, <laughs> but we uh, recorded them separately so we'd have those as individual pieces. Uh, but we wanted to show, I wanted to make sure that in keeping with what he was preaching that we brought out the glory of God in the remembrance. And so to be able to take a look at that uh, kind of um, has also moved me to, to step away from Luke for the next couple of uh, weeks mm-hmm. to be able to look at the kingdom of God uh, and the glory of God in the church and in baptism. We've got mm-hmm. our baptism uh, coming up on the 28th, and I'm uh, very excited about that, uh, a few people being baptized. And it just seemed appropriate for us to, to pause. We've been talking so much about the kingdom of God uh, in Luke and the coming of the kingdom and, and what that means. So, so that we really want to kind of develop that and see how does the church fit into that? What's mm-hmm. the difference between the, the church and the kingdom? What, what does it mean to be the church or to be a church? And how does salvation and baptism and all that fit together with it? So we'll be looking at that over the next few weeks. But uh, yesterday as we were remembering the price that was paid for our freedom, we wanted to be able to, to look at how does that reflect the glory of God? How does God's mercy at the cross um, bear out his glory? So I, I thought I, I thought it was um, a great moment to be able to do that. Sure. So uh, let's, let's, 
I, I'm excited for this actually. Not that I'm not always excited for Luke, but uh, kind of being able to discuss this particular subject and moving forward, uh, what you're just talking about with the church and, and what that means. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for some discussions about that. So uh, if you want to, as usual, uh, maybe go through a quick summary or, or you know whatever about Sunday, and then we can we can dive into it. Yeah. Well, um, and. In Keith's sermon, he um, he spoke on, on really three different um, categories or, or headings. One was the glory of God, uh, God's glory described, God's glory revealed in us, and then uh, God's glory uh, found in the God-man Jesus Christ. And so uh, that led naturally then into God's glory revealed uh, in His mercy toward us at the cross. Mm-hmm. So as we looked at this... Uh, he really kind of started out with this overwhelming idea. How, how in the world in a half hour, 45 minutes, are we going to develop the right. glory of God? This is so big. And I would contend that it, it's really everything. And, uh, you know, John Piper's developed his whole, whole ministry on this when, when he discovered that for himself mm-hmm. um, 50 years ago. Uh, it led him to what he calls Christian hedonism, but essentially in, in seeking out the God who is our ultimate desire. <clears throat> and uh, as as every Reformed Protestant knows, the glory of God is the goal. It's the end of all things. It's it's always God. Mm-hmm. So uh, in, in speaking of the God-centeredness of God, that God's primary priority is his own glory when he displays his mercy for us at the cross when he displays his mercy in our salvation uh it it is to his glory that he does that when he chooses to save us he doesn't save us because we're worthy he saves us because the mercy that is his nature is his glory so all of the things that god does bring glory to himself and uh that Sometimes it's hard for us to swallow as yeah. humans because coming from a, a an anthropocentric, a human-centered uh, viewpoint, we see that as well. Man, God must be arrogant. You know, how, is, right. how can God be so right. self-centered? Well, for God, it is appropriate to be self-centered because He is the center of everything. He is the center of the universe. All things exist for, by, through Him. For us. That is a usurpation. Then you are arrogant, yeah. right? Yeah, because that's a usurpation of the of the throne. Right. So as we've been speaking of God's kingdom and recognizing Christ as King, uh, and that even now He is receiving His coronation to come back and rule and reign, uh, we are we are most profoundly arrogant when we think these things revolve around us. And it probably only offends us when we're already a little too arrogant. That's a, that's a big. <laughs> theological reality for us to grasp. The fact that we are offended by the God-centeredness of God is our sinful pride, right. which separates us from God. Right. And that's and that is, a, while it's a fruit of that pride, it's also a tool of the enemy to foster that pride, to continue to work in us through our flesh, through the influence of the world, in a, in a world that is based on a without-godness, a mm-hmm. secularity, uh, that... <clears throat> that that whole concept is contrary to the reign, to the rule uh, of God as our sovereign, as of Christ as King. So that's why when Christ came into the world 
and he and he shared this parable in Luke to go go back to Luke 19, uh, as Jesus talked about this parable of uh, the this man of noble birth um, going away to be crowned king, then to return, his subjects hated him, mm-hmm. and you know they they sought to do anything they could to keep him from being their king, from ruling over them. That's exactly what we do, and so we rebel in in what we think are good things we rebel and create idols that set us at odds with the king as if we get to control our lives and and even honestly it's as americans i think it's really hard for us to get it because and not just as americans now but historically as americans we've promoted democracy and freedom and self-government and i think that's good and right and virtuous uh, and I think the the difficulty of it is that in having self-government in an earthly uh, society, it it fosters a mentality in us of autonomy, of uh, independence, which has a good part but also has a dark side mm-hmm. that keeps us from being dependent on God or from thinking of it. We're still dependent on God, whether we acknowledge it or not. Right. But it, it's it's much like um, the rich young ruler that Jesus encounters who can't let go of his stuff because he's got his own strength. And Jesus says, it's so hard for a rich person to get into heaven. It's not because riches are evil. It's because we rely on ourselves. When we're wealthy, when we're, uh, you know, we're able to be self-sufficient, then we don't recognize our need mm-hmm. for our sovereign, for our out. Savior. Right. And so then when we're destitute, when we have you know everything falling apart, when our, our life is a shambles and we have cancer and we're in the midst of a divorce and the dog died and somebody scratched our car in the parking lot and nobody loves us and I'm going to go eat some worms, then... That gives us the opportunity to see reality, to, to, to get on our knees, to come humbly as beggars before the king. And if we don't recognize that he is king, and we don't recognize what that means in the majesty, in the glory, uh, then we can't, really, we can't really submit ourselves in the right way. So I think that the, one of the dangers of living in a prosperous, free land is that we don't connect with that very well. If we were in an oppressed uh, monarchy or an oppressed autocracy where um, we have a dictator that owns everything and is supreme overall and we are completely at their mercy, Mm -hmm. hoping that they are a benevolent dictator, Mm -hmm. then that helps us to be able to see that picture. Whether that's good or bad, and because we're dealing with humanity, humans are inherently sinful and that's going to always be uh, more of a problem than, right. than a benefit. But when we see, you know, like the picture of um, Richard the Lionheart in, in England, and, and you look back at, at so many of the legends that carry off the heroic values of the benevolent king, it's a picture of who God is, and it helps us to be able to see that. Uh, we kind of miss that idea of glory. And, and I think... I think maybe just the idea of wonder. We're not great at, at, you know, we we want that, but we don't really connect with wonder like we should. And that's why I always go back to uh, Isaiah 6 and, and, uh, you know, we, (laughs) anybody who's affiliated with real life uh, knows that this is a a passage that we've gone to a lot over the years. Um, 
And, and it's where Isaiah receives his call and has this vision of God. Uh, Keith mentioned a quote from John Piper uh, that I'll develop in just a minute, um, where Piper refers to Isaiah 6, and he's talking about the glory of God, and he uses this picture. So from Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Just this opening sentence is huge in understanding the glory of God and being able to, to picture it, to see him. Uh, Francis Chan said that, that you know, we're talking about the fear of God. That's not something that we muster up. It's not right. some reverence that, that we have to think about. Oh, God is, is good, therefore I should revere him. If we've actually encountered God and we actually see the glory and majesty and power of who he is, then fear is the natural reaction. It's not a choice. It, no. it, right, exactly. If you are if you have a charging rhinoceros coming at you, you don't have to muster up a logical, rational explanation for your fear. Right. You are confronted with the immediacy of a supreme power that you cannot compare with. So my... It's oh, Aslan in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It, Aslan is a great picture <laughs> right. of that. And, and, and surprising, you know, Lewis right. does a great job of picturing that. To, to be able to see the imagery that Aslan brings. Uh, one of my favorite lines in, uh, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is still my favorite of, of those books, is when uh, Mr. Beaver, the kids are with Mr. Beaver, and, and uh, they're talking about the, you know, is he a safe lion? <laughs> is, is he safe? He's like, safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. That's the picture of God is, he is all-consuming. Mm -hmm. When he, uh, is it Silver Chair? I can't remember which one. He encounters, um, uh, I'm losing the name right now, the girl at the river, and she's dying of thirst, but she won't drink because the lion's there, and she's afraid he might eat him. And she says, you know, promise not to eat me. He said, no. <laughs> I, I've eaten girls and boys and kingdoms and worlds, and yeah, be ready. <laughs> and she said, well, then I dare not drink. And he said, then you'll die. Simple as that. Right. So I make no promises. I'm the lion. Right. You need to do what you need to do. Right. And, and that picture of God is uncomfortable for us. Mm -hmm. We want a God that we can pet. We want a kitty cat God, not an untamed lion God. And that's not the picture we get of him. So anyway, with, with uh, Isaiah, I get a little get excited about, about this. But with, with Isaiah um, receiving this vision, he sees the Lord seated on a throne, a, a symbol of his sovereignty, his majesty here. He's high and exalted. He's lifted up. And so the throne is his authority, his sovereignty. The high and exalted is his majesty. The train of the robe fills his temple. And that, that train symbolizes his glory. It's the glory of the king. That, that imagery that, that itself this. is like, what? Huge, man. And, and unless we get a little, a little more of a, a, a non-contemporary view, if we don't see a little more history, then we really can't grasp that imagery. So maybe people who... Uh, you know, watch you know medieval movies and things like that. Maybe you could get a little more of a picture if you if you are you know reading uh, medieval literature and you sense some of that majesty or ancient literature that draws that out. If you mm -hmm. see you know the idea of of you know Xerxes or, or some of these great uh, powerful you know godlike kings, the the reason that they have the mythology of of deity with so many of these kings or with the Caesars is the glory and the majesty and the power, that, that the absolute rule. Um, and so we get that 
kind of confused in, in human ways a lot a lot of the time, but it helps us to see better what we're looking at here. So in verse 2, it says, Above him, so he's high and exalted, but above him were seraphs. That's a, a term for angels that literally means burning ones. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. So you see this humility as they're covering their faces and their feet before the king. And with two they were flying. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I'm just picturing this. And it's awesome. But it gets more awesome as he tells the story. So these burning angels who are awed and humbled before the glory of the king are, are flying about calling to one another, holy, 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 that, that, uh, that three-part mm-hmm. magnification of that holiness that shows the completeness, the fullness of his, of his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. As the, as the train of his robe fills the temple, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The earth is, is like a temple unto God. Verse 4, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. That smoke, uh, so often in the Old Testament, represents the glory of God, the manifest or Shekinah glory of God, which we see in, in uh, light, smoke, fire. And here, as we see this happening, there, as they cry out this word of praise, it's, they're having an earthquake. Right. I mean, in, in, in the temple, there's an earthquake from the sound of their voices and the, and the cry of God's glory. And his immediate response, this is how you know you've seen God, how you know you've had a true encounter with the living God. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then the story continues in beauty as God takes away his sin with a burning coal from the altar. And, and it's just such a... I, I, the word awesome gets so overused since the 80s. It, 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 we throw it out, oh man, this coffee is awesome. This is awesome pizza. This is, you know. well, when you break it down, awesome. Awesome. Right. Yeah. And is that coffee, you know... I'm not left I speechless love, I in love awe coffee. of these things. And it's not like at five in the morning, I yeah. love coffee. Yeah. But yeah, awesome. You're, I mean, yeah, that is a word. When you are served. left right. dumbstruck. Right. And gobsmacked. Gobsmacked. <laughs> Good word. Good word. You know, you're standing at the, the edge of the Grand Canyon. And, right. and the view, and I've never been there myself, just seeing movies and pictures. To, to stand there and just be breathless mm-hmm. because this is so huge mm-hmm. and I, I've used the example lots of times of uh, out at the farm I'll be working in the pasture and standing next to mm-hmm. uh, the our, our bull out there and <clears throat> just realizing this this monster could destroy me mm-hmm. at any moment mm-hmm. and there's not a doggone thing I could do about it right now because I'm just of no comparison to him that's such a tiny right. tiny thing and but there, that's we all have awe. moments in our life where like something just strikes you and you look around and you're like, whoa. Right. <laughs> like, whoa. Yeah. Well, uh, we, when, when you have a, a near miss, right. you know, with something where you almost had a car accident. Right. And you, your heart's racing. Or even if you, you, know, you see, uh, you just happen to notice a particular sunset one night and it's yeah. like, 
Wow, and something right. just hits you. <laughs> Somebody who just visited our church posted on Facebook a picture of a sunset. It said, atheism is stupid. <laughs> but, but that's what it yeah, is. Yeah. Our hearts naturally see the glory of right. God. In fact, that was one of Keith's points uh, in... in uh, Way to bring it back. <laughs> in looking at verse 3 here, uh, uh, it says verse 3, but that's not the one we're looking at. I, I think the, the point that it really... Uh, where he brought it out is in Psalm 19. So in, in Psalm 19.1, we see that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And when we look at creation itself, there is a, a powerful image of God when we just are willing to see it. When uh, Louis Giglio does a great video, it's a, a sermon, a video uh, on, uh, I think it's called Indescribable. It's one of, one of the songs that uh, came out of the Passion Movement. I'm pretty sure it's Indescribable. Where it's just kind of panning back and looking at how small we are in the cosmos and, and looking at the vast yeah. galaxies and the greatness of it and how incredible our God is who knows each star by name. Right. He knows the exact chemical makeup of every star in every galaxy. He put them there. He designed them himself by hand even as he's designed us. That's just awe-inspiring. And I think it's it's sometimes hard for us, our you know, small little brains, to fully grasp that. Mm. So, or to you know, this is probably a, a bad way of phrasing it, but to put a harness on it, mm -hmm. like we want to do with so many things. No, I think that's a good way of phrasing it. That's I, what we try to do. But I think what we can understand and what we can see refers to, and excuse me if I'm jumping too far ahead, but refers to Keith's next point about the glory of God revealed in us, mm. and how he uses us for his glory. You know, and, and with that in mind, when we see how we have, I, I hope I'm not overly offensive or overstating oh, the case when I say this, but we have perverted church so much in, in trying to appeal to people on a human level. Right. So we've developed seeker-driven uh, things, uh, marketing-driven church practices where we want to find out how can we draw people in? How can we make the gospel palatable? Who is our demographic? And, and, <laughs> and there are elements of that that right. can be useful, right. and we do that here. Obviously, we, we try to put out a podcast that's going to be worth listening to at the appropriate time and length that people can hear it as they're driving or whatever they're doing. And, you know, we, we want... Uh, you know, we're looking at putting air conditioning in the church so that people can, you know, Be feel comfortable. comfortable. Right. And and there's, you know, there's just a certain inevitability of some of that. But we have worked so hard to not offend, to work to be inclusive of everything that we have forfeited the truth of Scripture in so many areas. And and we've talked about that recently. We we've seen it in Luke, uh, where we as the church, not not this particular household, but as a family, we have been so willing to forfeit the hard truth of Scripture to be able to couch it in softness that it, it becomes a lie. So we don't want to convict people of their sin. We don't want to offend them by talking about sin because... Because we all got that. You know, well, and, and you know, that sin's hard, Joel Osteen said. I think there's just too much negativity already. We have enough negative thoughts. We don't need to dwell on that kind of stuff. And, uh, and that's not a quote. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't quote it directly. But, and, and it's not just 
not, not just Pastor Joel, it's so many. I mean, here in our town, we've, we've done that. And I think one of the reasons that we see a lot of mainline churches in decline is because we have replaced the glory of God with the glory of religion. So we want to have a man-centered thing that is, uh, just the fact that I said man-centered is offensive, human-centered thing that elevates us, that makes our particular uh, intersectionality of, of our identity the, the main focus here. So it, my ethnicity, my, my skin color, my political background, my, uh, my uh, economic status, my uh, gender identification, however we're saying it this week, uh, uh, my sexual orientation, my my autonomy with my sexual choices, uh, a woman's uh, right to make decisions with her reproductive health care is the euphemism we're using these days. Uh, the All of the things that we have tried to spin in a way to be palatable rather than looking at our only identity is whether or not we are in Christ. Because apart from Christ, we're all dead in sin and going to hell. doesn't matter how pretty you are, how wealthy you are, how educated you are, it doesn't matter if you say all the right things or if you, you know. It doesn't matter if you go to church every week. You could go to church all the time. The you, could be a, you could be a pastor. Right. And I, unfortunately, I know <clears throat> pastors who don't know Christ because we've been so caught up in the religion, in the limited glory of humanity and, and, and the things that we do here that we've missed out on the, on the absolute, to borrow your word, gobsmacking, uh, awe-inspiring majesty and glory of the ultimate, and that is our God. And, and so we are here for his glory. We are, and, and, and that's why we're here. That's why we have the church. Right. That's why he reveals his glory in us. Right. And so uh, Piper likes to say that we are, uh, and, and I think, uh, not that I want to, elevate Piper's words anywhere close to Scripture, but I think his understanding of the Scripture is, is, I think it's a good take, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Mm -hmm. He created us for a relationship with Him. And so the more we lean into that, the more we find ourselves intimately resting in God, that whatever else happens, it, it, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I'm resting in the hands of the sovereign of the universe. Mm -hmm that's when his glory is revealed in us. And he chooses to reveal his glory not only in individuals, but in the church, in his gathered people. And so we'll talk about that going forward here. But the, the idea of him revealing himself in Christ is that Christ is the exact representation of the Father, that Jesus himself is the fullness of the deity made flesh. So when we see the Son... In his earthly ministry, what we're seeing is the truest picture that we could possibly have of the fullness of God, full okay, of were, grace and, and truth. And you said this for the God-man. The God-man, <laughs> yeah. So he's revealed, Jesus is the revelation of God, the invisible God made visible for us, according to Colossians. And we, as his bride, as his church, then reveal Christ, we reflect Christ to a world who needs to know him. So, you know, that, that uh, Piper quote I was mentioning based on Isaiah 6. So Keith brought this out as one of his early points in the, in the message. And the, the quote is in here, so I'll just read from Piper. In fact, if you want to see this, it's available at desiringgod.org. 
Um, and, and this is in an article. Um, no, I've gone too far. But it's in an article called What is God's Glory? And uh, so here's what he says. Now, when Isaiah 6, 3 says that angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The next thing they say is this, the whole earth is full of his, and you might have expected them to say holiness. It doesn't say holiness. It says glory. Intrinsically holy, intrinsically holy, and the, the whole earth is full of his glory, from which I stab at a definition by saying the glory of God is the manifest beauty of His holiness. Hmm. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of His holiness. It is the going public of His holiness. It is the way He puts His holiness on display for people to apprehend. Let me read that phrase again, that sentence again. It's the way He puts His holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. I think it's a beautiful way of stating it. And so we, we kind of wrapped up last week with, um, you know, when, when we were heading into the remembrance celebration with Second um, Corinthians 3, as Paul speaks of the glory of God in this new covenant. Um, and so as we see this, and, and we made uh, verse 18, our memory verse, uh, specifically from the New Living Translation, uh, which is not my normal translation. I'll be reading it from the NIV 84 edition, my preferred. Uh, here's what it says. Now, if the ministry that brought death, speaking of the law, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, it did, the, the, speaking of Moses coming off the mountain, mm -hmm. and the glory of God was so big and so vast and so overwhelming that he was still glowing as he encountered the people. So he covered his face with a veil, if the ministry that brought death, the law, which was engraved in letters on stone, passing and temporary, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains in the Old Covenant is red. I would, I would continue that thought by saying that same veil uh, remains not just when the Old Testament is read, but when we are stuck in an old covenant mentality, when we're stuck in a transactional uh, view of God's grace, uh, when we get trapped in human religion. This, then, yeah. Right, we get all this ritualism and, and uh, ceremonialism that mm -hmm. that is not the glory of this new covenant. Even when we use new covenant language, when we approach it from a uh, from a, I, I, I don't have a better word right now than transactional, but when we approach it from that perspective, then we have that same dullness, that same veil that blocks us from seeing it. It hasn't been removed, he says in verse 14, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. 
But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When we surrender to Him, when we give up ourselves and we, we come to Christ, then His Spirit in us removes the veil and the quickening, this is where you know we, we kind of get caught up on how things go, when God quickens our hearts, when He gives life and regenerates us and allows us to be able to see and removes the veil from our hearts so that now we can actually see Christ and receive Him as He is, rather than rejecting him as our king, this comes from God, then our veil is removed. Verse 16, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And the memory verse that we wrap the service up with, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a powerful picture of God's glory revealed in us as we, depending on your translation, older translations will render it something to the effect of beholding as in a mirror, as in a glass, the glory of God. So there's this idea that the New Living Translation brings out well, that we are able to see and reflect the glory of God. Our our best way of revealing God's glory through ourselves to the church to show God's glory to a waiting and lost world is to reflect the reality of Christ. And we do that in the context of relationship. Relationship with one another, that is a reflection of our relationship with Christ. Our relationship to the lost is what allows them to be drawn in because the kindness of God draws us to repentance. It's not our, our badgering and hounding and our beating them over the head with Bibles. And it certainly isn't our dishonesty right. of saying, you know, no, you're, you're okay. You're good enough. You're, you're, not, you're not a poor, wretched, blind leper. You, you're good. And it's okay. And the way you were born and the proclivities that you have and however you tend to sin personally, that's fine. God's okay with that. He just wants you to be happy. Come and let God pour out his blessing on you to the full height of your expectation. And, and whatever you're able to expect from God, he'll give that to you. And so many more garbage teachings. Come on your knees as a beggar before the king and he will reveal his glory to you and when his glory consumes you, then he will re reveal his glory to others through you. And that's a good place to stop. That should be a church mission statement or something. It should be. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Like I said, we're uh, uh, diverting away from Luke now for a couple weeks. Are well, we, we'll are still we be are we in Luke. We'll, we're, we're, we'll still be in Luke. We'll still be using it, but it's sort of a, a, a sidebar as we explore some of the concepts that we've been talking about in Luke. Sounds good. So uh, be sure to tune in to our Something to Think About podcast on Friday, and uh, we'll give you a little preview of what's coming up this week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>